0: And I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner and author of Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and cynthiatherlow.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So, pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get 3 pounds of organic chicken thighs, 2 pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or 1 pound of premium grass-fed, grass-finished steak tips, all for free, plus $20 off. To choose your free offer and get that $20 off. Butcherbox.com slash podcast with code podcast And we'll put all this information in the show notes.
1: New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% 20 off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends. Now back to the show.
0: Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 295 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Cynthia Thurlow. Hey, Melanie. How are you? I'm okay, as you know. I honestly forgot what this is like. To be super sleep deprived because I so, I put a lot of effort into making sure that I get a lot of sleep. Like I prioritize it like none other. So right now I'm currently in the virtual queue for the Taylor Swift pre sale concert and it's been five hours <laughs> and I'm like not present. And I was texting Cynthia being like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to record, but we are here. But I forgot what this feels like. I took some coffee.
2: Good. So a stimulant will definitely help you, but you're like a real person.
0: I know, but I just, I feel like I'm not quite present.
2: Yes. But you know, it's, it's amazing how, when you have like one blip in your sleep radar, you actually like, you'll, you'll be fine. You'll be tired. You'll go to bed probably around your normal time. And then tomorrow you'll wake up and feel totally normal.
0: So true. So I don't normally, I think we've talked about this. How much coffee do you drink?
2: Zero. Oh, none. None. Yeah, I'm not a coffee drinker. And it's funny because I, I had some genetic testing done and they actually said I, I do fine with caffeine, but I have to be completely transparent and say I made it through all my pre-med classes, all of undergrad and grad school, never drinking coffee. With no coffee. No coffee. And nights. I worked nights in ERs and, you know, worked overnights in the hospital and no, no coffee. I would drink I can't believe I'm gonna admit this. I used to drink diet Pepsi. Which is disgusting, so you were getting caffeine, but it wasn't i couldn't tolerate like it's not something I could drink every day. It was like I would bring it with me in case I felt like I literally could not keep my eyes open, but not every day so i'm I'm officially a very much an early bird that is uncaffeinated except for my occasional green tea, which i don't necessarily have every day out of laziness.
0: I was thinking about it actually a few days ago because normally i I think I've shared this before. I literally just have like a sip of coffee, like a sip every morning. And it's more just a mental thing. It's probably like no caffeine in it at all. But I was reflecting the other day on how nice it kind of is to not be dependent on coffee because I know and I mean, I would go through really intense, like in college, really intense periods. And coffee is something where, like I did my experiment with alcohol and wine where I didn't drink for a year to see if I was like happier, Not drinking, and I realized I was much happier having wine every night. Like with coffee, I feel like if I go into a coffee every day, I think I am happier without coffee because it's just nice not to have to use it. And then when you need it, like right now, it's like very potent. And I I probably just had like a quarter of a cup, and I'm like, okay.
2: (laughs) But that, but I think it's it's also recognizing that this is a an like a good indication of a day that you do well with it. Like I will take adapt adaptogenic herbs, or I will take glandular products if I feel like I definitely need a little bit of support, but I don't know. I never really, I, I like the way coffee smells. I just don't like the way it tastes. I never have. And it's ironic that I have a child that's kind of a espresso Americano snob and really is into his coffee. And then the other three of us don't drink it at all.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. I will say though, my thoughts on coffee, just in case people are Curious because I'm not trying to scare people away from coffee. I feel like the studies are pretty consistent that coffee drinkers have health benefits.
2: Well, absolutely. The polyphenols and, you know, the plant based compounds in, in coffee and bitter teas are, it's undeniable. I think that's how I actually started forcing myself to drink green tea a couple of days a week was that understanding that. Those bitter plant-based compounds actually have physiologic benefits. And so I'm like, okay, you're going to learn how to drink this. And so I ice my green
0: tea. That's how I drink it. It's also pretty mind-blowing. I'm pretty sure they say, isn't coffee our biggest source of magnesium? Am I making that up? I mean, I think about
2: getting a lot of those from brightly pigmented vegetables And I think coffee is very bio-individual because I have some patients that will actually increase their cortisol, which increases their blood sugar. And so it's, you know, kind of figuring out what the right amount is for everyone. I used to have patients that would drink, I don't know, 10 cups of coffee a day. And I was like, how are you functioning? I would be a, like, nervous, jittery mess.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely that tolerance (laughs) that happens. I mean, I shudder thinking about how much I drank in college. I don't know why I was thinking coffee was a high source of magnesium, but I think it is definitely like the number one source of, it's the number one source of something like polyphenols or something in Americans' diets, which is interesting. That is, I would
2: hope it would come from a combination of things and not just something drinkable. But I I think Americans just really, like, I understand, like, I love the idea of something warm in my hands, like the ritual of that I get, but... I don't know. I I like getting polyphenols from a variety of things, even, you know, bitter herbs and, you know, vegetables and things like that.
0: I looked it up. It is antioxidants for most people.
2: That's crazy. Well, think about how many people are drinking regular coffee as opposed to like understanding that it tends to be a mycotoxin rich food product and you know, just understanding that there's some nuances to the healthiest options that are out there. We're probably I'm probably going to get hate mail from the coffee lovers out there. But that's always the way I think about it is I think, you know, if you tolerate coffee and you enjoy it, that's great. Just try to pick the, you know, best quality product that your budget permits.
0: Yeah. I definitely think, like you mentioned, those mycotoxins are quite an issue. And then just one other comment about what you're mentioning about the sleep. I'm prepping right now to interview Heather Moday. She wrote a book about the immune system and immunotypes. I think I mentioned it on a Previous episode, and something that just stuck with me that she was talking about was sleep and just how she was saying how like out of all the lifestyle factors like diet, sleep, exercise, sleep is hands down the thing that can give you the fastest return on an investment. But basically, what you were just saying, like you can with one night's sleep, you can see so many changes and improvements and so many biomarkers compared to like diet, where you kind of have to like takes a little bit and exercise even so. Yes. Value your sleep is the point. So anything new with you?
2: Oh, goodness. We are finalizing our plans for spring break. So that's been exciting. And every year I plan a spring break trip and no one knows what I've planned. And so, you know, there were some requests at the end of last year. They didn't want to go away for Christmas. I was like, okay, I got that. And so we're doing something different. So we are flying to Portugal and we'll be in two cities there doing a variety of like historical things and food tours. And I'm excited.
0: Awesome. And how are things going with your creatine?
2: Good. It's really exciting. We've got amazing feedback. And, you know, from my perspective, women having a better understanding of how it can improve both cognition and muscle health. And it was interesting. I was presenting a research article to some of my coaches today, and I was telling them about the role of lowered levels of estrogen, how that impacts muscle protein synthesis, and why in those instances, it's even more important that we're taking exogenous, meaning creatine outside the body, because our body, women actually make 70 to 80% less creatine endogenously inside the body. This gets kind of exacerbated further, you know, heading into perimenopause and menopause. So... I was talking to them about how they were looking at two different groups in this randomized controlled trial, women that were taking creatine and not doing any strength training versus women that were taking creatine and doing strength training. And there was no comparison in terms of the net improvement in muscle quality and muscle health. And so I think on a lot of different levels, what I've been loving is just having the conversation about the unique needs of women and also identifying that men benefit from taking creatine as well. So it's going really well. I'm very excited. I'm so appreciative that you encouraged me to create my own supplements.
0: I'm so excited. I'm really excited as well to hear people's feedback after trying yours. And I just got my notification email that yours is coming. I can't wait to try it. So I know I've asked you this a lot. How do I take it? Can I take it with food? You can take it. So typically what I've been
2: doing is using it in a smoothie, but you can take it with food. You definitely don't want to take it in a fasted state. It's for one of those feeding windows in terms of, you know, getting the maximized benefits. But it's it's a white powder. It's easy to measure. That gives you a complete, you know, the the scoop is for three grams. And, you know, all the research has been done on three to five grams. Five grams is I'd be leaning more into individuals that are vegetarian or vegan because their needs are actually increased by virtue of the fact they're not consuming animal-based protein so yeah it's super easy to take it doesn't taste like anything it blends really easily thankfully because I think we've all had powders that are kind of chalky and don't mix well with water and that's never a good thing
0: yeah probably so you said it doesn't taste like anything mm- really like nothing
2: not to me I'm pretty like I've got this acute sense of taste I think which is why I don't like coffee because it's just too I was one of those weird people, like, you know, anything that I would say I, I would be like the taste tester a couple hundred years ago to determine if something was poisonous. Cause I have this crazy acute sense of taste and smell, which is not to my benefit having worked
0: in healthcare for many years. Wow. Oh, I can imagine. I'll probably take it like literally with my food. I'm super weird. I like take supplements with food. Like I just eat them. And that's okay. I like open capsules and like them on things and like I would order quercetin powder and just like add it to my food. I would order all these random things like milk thistle. Oh you're very adventurous. Well very exciting. So how can people order?
2: Yeah so you would go to my website and it the the correct address should be ww.cynthurlow.com backslash creatine is what it should be. You know how there are all sorts of technological glitches that occur, you know, throughout this launch process. It's illuminated, you know, little glitches that we don't think are a big deal. And then you realize with coding, you know, any little misstroke of a key can
0: make things not work properly. I know. It's crazy. I remember when I launched Sarah Peptase, like the night before, like the day of because it was a midnight launch, we realized there was a glitch and they had to rebuild my entire website like right up until the it was so stressful yeah technology and I'm like right now I'm still in this Taylor Swift queue I'm like staring at the thing <laughs> I'm really impressed with your dedication I've got to get these tickets the thing is when they come out like do you know about you probably don't about this verified fan pre-sale that Ticketmaster does
2: I do not
0: so I learned about it With this for the different artists, they try to make it so that the fans can get tickets without it going through all of these resellers where they jack up the prices. So they do this like a special sale where you have to be on their email list and then you have to apply and then you have to be accepted. And it's seems very arbitrary how they accept you or not. Like my good friend did not get accepted, but I did. So then if you get accepted, then the day of, which was this morning, you get in the wait list and then you have a code for once you get in to like actually get the seats, but it's been so glitchy. I think Ticketmaster sort of crashed from all the Taylor Swift fans. So that's where I am waiting, but okay. Sorry. Tangents. No, that's super exciting. I'm excited for you. Last question about the creatine. Is there a launch
2: special or a coupon code for people? It should be Cynthia. Uh, We'll give you 10% off. During the launch, we had even more amazing discounts. But now that it is officially on sale, you get 10% off with the code Cynthia.
0: Awesome. 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 And last question about it. How is your creatine different from other creatines on the market?
2: Well, I think we really did an incredibly conscientious effort to keep it simple. You know, there were lots of ideas that were proposed and I really wanted it to be creatine monohydrate and without any fillers to know where it was properly sourced from And I just think when you get online and you buy things from Amazon, as an example, obviously there are great things that come from Amazon, but I think when it comes to supplementation, we just have to be careful. And so we know where this product was sourced from. We know where it's packaged. We know what it's not full of. And I know much to your point about not having fillers and gluten and dairy and soy and other garbagey things that get added to supplements in an effort to keep costs low, this is what I believe to be the most high quality creatine monohydrate that's available on the market.
0: Awesome. Well, I can definitely attest to all of that. Just for listeners who are not familiar, both Cynthia and I work with MD Logic to create our supplements. And the amazing thing about it is the ability for us to like really make exactly what we want to make to the highest quality. And they test you know multiple times for heavy metals and toxins and fillers. And it's just It's nice to feel very confident in the products that we're creating. So I'm very excited for you and the creatine. Thank you. Likewise. So shall we jump into some questions for today?
2: Absolutely.
0: So to start things off, we have a question from Heather. The subject is IF. Heather says... Can you tell us, ladies, what a day of eating looks like for each of you? How much protein and carbs y'all eat and still are able to maintain ketosis? I'm about to receive all three books from both of you in the mail. This question is from actually a few years ago. She's probably talking about my book and then when Jen had two books. I'm about to receive all three books from both of you in the mail. So excited. I've been on keto way of eating for over a year and just starting to look into expanding my carb intake. XOXO.
2: Well, Heather, thank you for your question. I would say, you know, when I was first new to fasting, I didn't track my macros per se. But obviously, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon's work has had a huge influence on me. And so initially, after I met her, I started tracking protein. And that's kind of my guide. Now I don't track macros because I I generally don't need to. And I just lean into more an intuitive eating approach. As an example, today, I didn't break my fast until, gosh, almost 1230 because I had to drive to DC with my husband for a doctor's appointment. And so I sat down and had a bison burger. I had three deviled eggs. I had some sauteed mushrooms. A lot of this is just leftover stuff. And I would say that this is a lower carb meal for me. I tend to hover under 75 grams, under 50 grams, sometimes as much as 100. But I definitely am conscientious. And it's not that I don't enjoy carbohydrates, but... Even the non-starchy variety just depends on the day. And for me, it was eating a meal quickly because I had things I had to do this afternoon. And then my second meal today will probably be, I think we're going to broil some salmon. And I might have, you know, we have salad. We do a lot of food prep in my house just to make meals move along faster. So today's going to be a lower carb day, a higher carb day. I might have 100, 125 grams of carbs. I just do better, me personally when I keep my carb threshold about under, you know, under seventy five, under fifty a day. But it's never to be restrictive. It's just I lean into what my body needs. Like yesterday I needed some more carbohydrates, So I had some blueberries like as dessert last night and some dark chocolate. But I, I think for each one of us, it's really determining what makes us feel good. And I definitely carb cycle. So on a day when I'm, I have more carbohydrates, I may have three meals in my feeding window, open up my feeding window, and just have more discretionary carbs. It might be sweet potato or root vegetables. But the protein piece for me is almost always at least 100, 125 grams of protein a day. And that's really what I lean into. And then the fats as I need to. Like today I had olives, which I know that Melanie
0: hates, but I love
2: olives. They're like one of my favorite things. What about you, Melanie?
0: Yeah. So I actually really like this question for a few reasons. One, because people ask me a lot what I eat and I, I don't like to hardcore share because I'm so crazy. And also I don't want people to eat what I'm eating because it's what I'm eating. But in any case, to answer this, I don't count protein or carbs. I sort of exist within a macronutrient paradigm. So basically, I just do either low fat, high carb or low carb, higher fat. Not really high fat cuz I don't ever really go like super crazy on the fat, but in general, I'm usually doing a low fat, high carb, high protein approach. And I'm happy that she asked about still being able to maintain ketosis cuz I'm going to comment on that. I do the one meal a day for, you know, 4 hours or so every night and it is about you know, it's a couple pounds of meat and it's a couple pounds of fruit. And I just looked up the fruit. I mean, I probably eat about 200 grams of carbs and fruit, which is a lot, mostly from like blueberries. I used to do pineapple, but the thing I wanted to comment on is like, is the maintaining ketosis. So I actually don't, know if I'm going into ketosis during the fast or how deeply I am, if so. I haven't measured ketones in forever. Like last time I was measuring ketones was probably back in like 2018. And interesting, I mean this isn't surprising, but I did find that when I was on the higher fat days, especially if I added MCT oil, the the ketones would go through the roof compared to not so much on the high carb. But what I want to point out is You don't have to be in ketosis to burn fat. And I think a lot of people can get all the benefits of intermittent fasting without worrying so much about whether or not they're in ketosis during the fast. So, yeah, I honestly don't even know if I'm getting into ketosis, but I am eating about probably 200 carbs every night and who knows how many grams of protein, whatever is in a couple pounds of meat? Well, I think the big thing is
2: understanding we're all bioindividuals. So, you know, asking us is, is certainly like a great question, but by the same token, understanding, depending on how metabolically flexible you are, depending on your age, how much muscle mass you have can really influence what your carbohydrate threshold is. And certainly you don't want to be in ketosis 24 seven. In fact, that's why I kick myself out. That's why I actually alternate amount of carbohydrates that i consume and i know ben azadi and i talk about this quite a bit if you don't know ben azadi he's amazing a friend of mine who heads up the podcast keto camp and has proliferative content around ketosis and ketones and and things like this and so we want to vary what we're doing day to day and and i think that's certainly important
0: like because of this question i said at the beginning i get so nervous about people thinking there's one answer that they have to do what, what another person is doing when bioindividuality is so key. I'm actually recording with Ben tomorrow. Oh good. I love Ben. I've never met him just through email. So I I haven't, I haven't like talked to him or anything.
2: No, he's one of the most positive people you will ever meet, like really and genuinely one of the most positive people. And I I mean, we've been friends for several years and spoken on so many stages together. And my husband knows he and his fiance and I know them. And like, we just really enjoy each other's company. He's a good person, good human.
0: I'm really, really excited about that. Hi friends, one of my favorite foods for gut health, skin, cravings, energy, and immunity is definitely bone broth. I and so many of my listeners love bone broth, but it can also be intimidating because it can be hard to find a bone broth that is all natural, organic, free of preservatives, and especially no salt added. Of course, you can always make your own, which I love, but that can be a little bit of a cumbersome process. That's why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty and the Broth. They make it so, so easy to bring bone broth into your life because they ship it in concentrated form in shelf stable packets. It's easy to store, doesn't take up space, you don't have to worry about keeping it frozen. And then when you reconstitute it with water, you can customize it exactly to your tastes. It is incredible. Beauty in the Broth makes delicious bone broth from vegetarian fed, free range chicken bones and USDA organic, grass fed, ranch raised beef. The meat and bones come from certified humane and USDA organic farms. No antibiotics, no hormones. They also use organic vegetables and powerful herbs that are so delicious all without any added salt or sodium. A lot of the broths on the market are also kettle or pressure cooked, which breaks down ingredient nutrients and reduces their integrity and potency. Beauty in the Broth doesn't do that. They let all of those amazing ingredients slowly simmer for up to 24 hours to create a broth that is super high in naturally occurring collagen and nutrients. Your gut will thank you, I promise. We often get questions about the best way to open your eating window. This is an incredible way to do that, especially when you're in the fasted state, your gut is super ready to absorb these nutrients and bone broth contains the specific nutrients needed to heal your gut, help with leaky gut, support digestion, and so much more. And when it's cold in the winter months, what tastes better than a warm cup of bone broth? You will notice it in your nails, in your gut health, in your hair, in your improved recovery, increased energy. And did I mention it's so convenient and so easy to use. They've also got a vegan mushroom broth, which is super rich in umami and delicious for all of you vegans out there. And you can get 15% off site-wide Just go to melanieavalon.com slash broth and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 15% off site-wide. That's melanieavalon.com slash broth with the coupon code melanieavalon for 15% off site-wide. Friends, if you've been wanting to get on the bone broth train, this is the way to do it. Definitely check it out. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. So okie dokie, shall we go on to our next question?
2: Sure. This is from Robin and the subject is chronic pain flare. I enjoy your podcast and I'm loving the diet. However, I'm having a significant flare-up of my chronic pain and wonder if it is related to intermittent fasting. I have been diagnosed with central sensitivity, chronic Lyme, and fibromyalgia. Is it possible there is another variable at play? Always too many variables, but my wife suggested I ask you. My internet search didn't yield any answers, and I'm hoping you also haven't heard of this happening, or if it does happen to some, that it will subside as my body adjusts. I've been doing intermittent fasting since mid-April and varied between four to eight hour windows with only occasional lapses when I've been sick. I really love it. So don't want to stop. Thank you.
0: All right, Robin, thank you so much for your question. So I thought a lot about this and I have a very casual answer and then I have what I found from researching, which did not find the answers I was hardcore looking for, I'll start with the research side of things. So I did a lot of searching for fasting and chronic pain. There's a lot of studies on fasting helping chronic pain. So there was a really nice review. I think it was a review, but it was called Intermittent Fasting Potential Utility in the Treatment of Chronic Pain Across the Clinical Spectrum. I had never thought about pain how it breaks down, (laughs) like all the different types of pain. So it talks about like all the different types of pain and like how there's six main types and it has this really nice chart about how fasting can benefit most of those types with sources. But it just in general, if you do a search in PubMed or Google Scholar, there's a lot of studies about fasting benefiting pain, which is not the experience that Robin is sharing. So I found another study called the analgesic effect of refeeding on acute and chronic inflammatory pain. And it was speaking to the effects specifically of fasting versus eating on pain perception. It was in rodents, not humans, but some of the interesting findings. So again, I don't know how much of this applies to humans because of the the rodent aspect, but they did find that both fasting and feeding helped pain, but that for fasting in the rodents it was only in the second half of the fast that they started experiencing the pain relief the pain relieving effects and fasting helped only the inflammatory type of pain and not mechanical whereas food seemed to help both again that's a, a nuance i don't know how much of it applies to humans especially when the majority of the studies that i could find were that fasting helped pain my casual non scientific sort of in of one. I haven't experienced it, but I feel like I've seen all people talking about this. A lot of people will say that when they start fasting, whatever issues they have can get worse before they get better. And I don't know if it's like a healing crisis or a detox effect or what's going on. I mean, it does sound sort of like that rodent study where it said the pain relieving effects started in the second half of the fast. So have you heard that, Cynthia, where people say that it gets a little bit worse before it gets better with fasting? You know,
2: it's funny. I always think about food-based sources of inflammation that can be exacerbated. I, I just, especially with someone that has chronic Lyme, I think there's, there's a lot to impact there. I mean, you've got a chronic inflammatory response syndrome and I can come at this question with many different angles. More often than not, people feel a whole lot better as they're pulling things out of their diet. So I wonder if there's a diet variable that hasn't been... Examine that may be making things worse in conjunction with fasting.
0: Yeah, I would encourage you, Robin, to keep on with the fasting. I would imagine there are other variables at play, and I can't see how the fasting would continually, perpetually continue to make things worse. Like, I would probably stick it out and see what happens and see if it gets better. And definitely, like Cynthia said, look at other potential issues for what might be going on there with food and things like that. But do you know what I'm talking about, Cynthia, where like when people start fasting, they experience things. I don't know if it's because the body is like finally cleaning up and tackling stuff, but I feel like people will experience, I don't like using the word healing crisis because that sounds, you know, that sounds very woo-woo. But do you know what I'm talking about, this idea? No, I mean, I do.
2: Again, I'm going to come at this as a clinician. And, you know, from my perspective, if there's this upregulation of autophagy and, you know, there's some degree of, you know, deeper healing that's ongoing. And and then on top of that, their detoxification pathways aren't properly opened. I mean, that could be contributory. I mean, I'm just looking at this as just from the perspective that we know, you know, we detoxify every day. We poop, we pee, we breathe, we sweat, right? But the two like main sites of detoxification where our body is getting rid of toxins, breaking down medications, et cetera. Two phases occur in the liver and then the bulk of toxins are then hopefully excreted through the digestive system and the gut. And so I I think there's many variables at play. You know, when people tell me that they're having an upregulation in pain, I believe that. But obviously, I I think that there's probably a component to this that is probably not completely clear in the question. So, and it's not a, a criticism of Robin. I'm just saying that chronic pain people just have an upregulation in inflammatory cytokines and other inflammatory processes. And there could be something else going on. When people tell me they have fibromyalgia and they have a tick-borne illness, there's a lot going on. So from my perspective, I, I think it's digging deep, you know, anti-inflammatory nutrition, removing the, you know, the most common predicators of inflammation in the body, you know, the gluten grains, dairy, alcohol, sugar, soy in conjunction with fasting can be really powerful but i would also want to ensure that robin has you know taken the the steps or is kind of leaning into opening up those detoxification pathways that could be exacerbating why there's a pain response
0: yeah no i think that's great another thing i was thinking of this is not probably what's happening with her but it's just an example of something where something might get worse before it gets better like people will talk about when they like go on like a low like a carnivore diet, and they have oxalate dumping, like things like that, where some sort of restriction for whatever reason causes a release of a compound or toxins or a stirrup of something else.
2: Well, and those plant-based defenses are a real thing. I I think that for many of us, I mean, obviously, if you have chronic Lyme, you've had multiple rounds of antibiotics. There's no question you've got some degree of hyperpermeability of the small intestine. I mean, there's a lot that can go on. So. You know, from my perspective, those are the people who tend to be the most sensitive to those plant-based defenses, you know, whether it's oxalates, whether it's saponins. I mean, there's just so many variables that could be impacting that. And I find that even those of us that are abiding by like a gluten-free diet, I always think about almonds as the best example. Like they're they're proliferative in keto and low-carb products, but the oxalates can be a huge hindrance to you know, really hampering down the inflammatory response in the body. And for a lot of people, they may get pain. Others may get diarrhea. They may have abdominal pain. You know, it's interesting. I interviewed an oxalate expert on the podcast.
0: Who'd you interview?
2: Monique. And she trains underneath. Who's that woman? It's like Sharon, Sandy.
0: Sally Norton and Susan Owens mixed up.
2: Yes, it's one of the two. And so she trained with her and she's a wonderful resource and all her content is kind of leaning in the oxalate direction. I was was stunned at how much I learned. And so for me, I don't tolerate a lot of the heavier oxalate foods and still don't to this day. And and I think a lot of it had to do with the uh, 13 days of being hospitalized, a lot of antifungals, antibiotics for six weeks and you know, my gut's probably still healing. So so when I look at this, there's a lot of different things that could be going on. But I, I would start with nutrition as being a, a huge driver and then detoxification.
0: Yeah, I will put a um a link in the show notes. I had Sally Norton on my show. The oxalates, it's one of those topics where I don't normally think about it. And I think a lot of people don't normally think about it. But then like you just said, when you hear the information about it, it's kind of mind blowing. It's like, oh, maybe this actually is like a major issue.
2: Yeah. And I just had Bill Schindler on the podcast. I know you've had him on your biohacking podcast and we talked about oxalates. And I said, if you look at them under a microscope, they look like little crystals. And I said, is it any surprise that, you know, these plant-based defenses are designed to protect the plant, but in someone who's susceptible to them, like me, this is why my mother, I've got an Italian mother. She's always trying to get me to eat more greens. And I finally had to say to her, I was like, leave me alone about the kale And the spinach i'm like it doesn't agree with me and in someone else it's probably absolutely fine but for me i know exactly what it does to my digestive system and you know it just reminds me that you know there's a very fine line with a little bit and then enough that will, will provoke a flare and i'm just not willing to go there
0: yeah i'll also put a link in the show notes my app food sense guide has oxalates as one of the compounds that it shows if people are curious about the levels of oxalates in food. So you can get that at melanieavalon.com slash food sense guide. And we can put a link to the interviews with Bill Schindler. He is so amazing.
2: He was lovely. And it was funny. I made my, I make my husband listen to my podcast episodes. He, he was like, you know, he's talking about bugs and he's talking about organ meat and he was like, I gotta meet this guy. He sounds amazing. And I said, No, he's a complete realist. Like he'll tell you his kids didn't love the insects, but that he talks about the the value of cricket flour and, you know, just being open-minded to the fact that, you know, back in uh, you know, Paleolithic days, you just ate what was available. You weren't picky about it. Like I'm only eating muscle meat. I probably would have starved. But yeah, I'm I'm not the most foodie adventurous. Like I'm not eating the cartilage and the organs every day and goodness. I like pluck though. Have you tried pluck? No. What is... So it's like an organ meat based seasoning. It's really good. We'll have to link it up in the show notes. Wait, that sounds so cool.
0: Wait, it's made from
2: organ meats, but it's a seasoning. Wait. Oh, it's a chef that created it. James Berry. I've had him on the podcast. Wait, this is so cool. Yeah. And it's really good. And actually they came out with some new flavors. And so the spicy is really good. Actually, I like all of them, but we'll... We'll link it up. We'll give you a my discount code. but i I just I'm like anything that can get organ meats in general more accessible, like to me, if I third over deviled eggs, it's no big deal. But if I sat down and eat a piece of liver, that probably wouldn't happen. So I think the understanding is trying to make these things accessible. And I know Bill does a great job with that. James Berry does a great job with that, and i and he's a chef. And I just really appreciate people trying to find clever ways to get people eating more nutrient dense foods.
0: I'm looking this up. Okay, so like their main one, like the normal all-purpose one. So it has a blend of liver, spleen, kidney, heart, pancreas with onion, salt, paprika, lemon pepper, garlic, parsley, mustard seed, thyme. I wonder if they have one that's AIP friendly. Let's see. Pure. Let's look at the pure one. I think that's
2: just organ meat.
0: Okay. Yeah. And then zesty garlic. Let me look at that one. I am like doing online shopping. Wait, this is so cool. Yeah. And they're really good. And so James is a, like a real chef and I love just how clever he is. Friends. I want the zesty garlic one. It has liver, spleen, kidney, heart, pancreas, and then onion, garlic, lemon peel, salt, carrot, garlic, cabbage, parsley, oregano, marjoram, basil, and thyme. It's really good. And spicy is good too. We're kind of
2: spicy people. We like a little bit of spice. My husband more more so he does than I do, but it's going to be part of our holiday gift list because I think it's just like a fun way to get people exposed to eating organ meat in a way that's not scary. Like I'm not going to sit down and eat a plate of spleen, although I can respect those that do.
0: Yeah. And they actually do list on their website if it's AIP or not. Super cool. That never occurred to me. That's smart that's smart. And then there's that, a lot of people like, there's some company that makes, it's like breadcrumbs, but it's like made from meat. Do you know what I'm talking about?
2: Oh, is that like the pork panko?
0: Yeah, I think so. It's like, they have it at like chicken.
2: Yeah. It's a little salty. I mean, I like the idea. We tried it and it was so salty and I was like, I like salt, but it was a little too salty for me.
0: So another company actually reached out to me called Safe Catch.
2: Yeah. They reached out to me. I think, did I... I think
0: I told you about the scallops with them. The scallops he told me about were, cause I wrote it down to look them up. It was Seatopia.
2: Oh, they all run together.
0: Seafood is my thing. So I've been like taking notes. Like, I literally have written down in my agenda to look up your Seatopia scallops. So you you like those?
2: I thought they were good. I thought they were good. I mean, I, I liked my fish the day of that's kind of, my husband is a fisherman and likes to go deep sea fishing. And so he's super picky about seafood. So, we tend to buy it the day that we're going to eat it. So, I think it's super convenient. Like, I think Butcher Box is awesome in terms of like meat shows up at my door. I don't have to go to the grocery store. I'm not 100% sold on seafood being sent to my house. I'm not there yet.
0: So, I'll comment on the seafood aspect. Oftentimes, when you're buying it fresh, it's actually less fresh than frozen because frozen, they freeze it right there. And so that, stops histamine production and basically just freezes it in time compared to when you buy it at the store, if it hasn't been frozen in between, which sometimes they freeze it and thaw it again. But regardless, it's a longer shelf life where it's been not frozen, which is interesting. I think a lot of people don't think about that, which is why I'm all about the frozen. So the safe catch, the reason I really, really like them is they have tuna and salmon and they test all of it for mercury. And I just think this is such a problem, especially with tuna. With Because with tuna, there's so many different species and so many different sizes. And so the mercury levels in tuna can range. Like some tuna can be low mercury, but some can be really, really high. And so they actually test. So all of their tuna tests to be super low in mercury and the same with the salmon. And it comes in, they just sent me a box, but it comes in pouches. So I'm really, really excited that, they reached out to me. They gave me a coupon code. So this will only be through the end of the year. So stock up now. And this would be a great thing to stock up on because like I said, it comes in pouches. So you can just stock up. <laughs> so you can get 20% off with the coupon code, Melanie Avalon. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but their website is safecatch.com, which is easy. But yeah, going back to the fish thing, cause I'm like such a fish fan. You can always ask at the uh, counter like if it's been frozen or not frozen or like what the deal is with it. Oftentimes, it's just a little fun fact, at Whole Foods, half of the time, the stuff that they have in the, like the fish counter is just a thawed version of the frozen bags that you would buy in the frozen section. <laughs> like they do that with the shrimp. They do that with the barramundi. I think they might do it with the salmon. So it's kind of crazy.
2: Awesome. No, it's always good to learn about options that are out there that are safer, I think after my mercury issue about 5 years ago I've just been very conscientious about sporadically eating fish and not eating it often.
0: Yeah. Once you have that mercury toxicity problem and it's something where you can just stop me because I like I'm so passionate about this subject, I'll talk about it for an hour, but it's something where you don't see it. Like you don't see the mercury in fish, so you like if you could see the mercury, I promise you people would not be putting even moderate mercury species of fish into their mouth. I've said this a ton of times, but if you look at like the spread and you take like a piece of tilapia that has the lowest amount of mercury possible and you compare it to like a piece of swordfish that has the highest amount, it can be 300 times. So if you eat one piece of swordfish, that could be like eating 300 pieces of tilapia for the mercury in one meal.
2: My mom went through a sea bass, like fixation for a long time.
0: Chilean sea bass? Yeah. Oh, I know. It's so good.
2: Yeah. And when I when I tell you it was like years, that's like every time we showed up, she went from being vegan to eating fish and eggs. And we were very happy about this. And like now she's Mac to eating meat. But the joke was she would buy like the most massive piece of sea bass. And sea bass is wonderful, but it's like one of those overfished fishes. That's why it's so expensive. That's the other thing is like trying to get acclimated, to trying like being open to trying different things. I think that's important. Like just being open minded is certainly very helpful.
0: Yeah, definitely. When it comes to the fish, I actually have a blog post I'll put in the show notes. I talk about the fish that I will eat because I really only will eat, I'm very, very limited. I'll eat scallops and shrimp because they're so low on the totem pole. I'll eat farm salmon. I won't even eat wild salmon with the exception of this safe catch, which is very exciting. And then I eat responsibly farmed tilapia if I know the source. And then I'll eat Australia's spare And then when I go out, I might get like, sole or trout or something. It's funny, Jen and I had completely different food tastes. So she was like, not about the fish at all.
2: (laughs) I grew up at the shore for anyone that's from New Jersey, the shore, the shore, the Jersey shore. And so we ate a lot of fish growing up and it wasn't really until probably until I got to Baltimore because Baltimore is on the water and there's just a lot of like crabs. And I mean, you just eat a lot more shellfish and fish in general. And then I met my husband who's from Annapolis. And, and, you know, we don't eat, we don't eat a ton of fish because my kids don't love it and it just isn't worth it. It's expensive. They like shrimp. So we do shrimp, but my husband and I will usually get fish for ourselves and then give the teenagers the meat, which is what they want.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that fish seems to be more of an acquired. Oh, my cue is moving. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Whoa. We went. Okay. Okay. I, I might have to, oh my, it's moving. I'm going 1,288 people in front of me.
2: Oh my God.
0: For, for the past five hours, it's been at 2,000 plus, And now it just, <gasps> 1125. I'm going to get in in a second. Okay. Okay. I will just say about the fish. Sorry, this is real time. Real time. Melanie getting her Taylor Swift tickets. 950. I'm going to have to jump in a second. 762. I'll just say about the fish really quickly. It's interesting that it seems to often be an acquired taste. I feel like kids kind of shy away from it. Okie dokie, shall we go on to another question? Yes. So we actually have two questions and they go together. Sort of. They're similar topics, so I thought I would read them together. So we have a question from Therese. The subject is repetitive routines or mix it up. And Therese says, Hi, love your podcast. I recently started IF, and the first weeks I simply followed the 16.8 method. I found an app that has great programs and found a program for weight loss, and the setup seems to be switching it up with different intervals of eating and fasting. I think of it almost as when you exercise, you get best results when you switch it up doing both cardio, strength, and different types of intervals. Does weight loss via IF get better results when you're not letting your body get used to a steady rhythm, but rather surprise it with different intervals? Internal windows of fasting and eating. And then James, his subject is constantly changing fasting windows. And he says, I started IF about a month ago using the Body Fast app, which recommends a different program every week 24 hour fasts, 16, 8, 24, and everything in between to prevent your body getting used to a pattern. I also move fasting periods myself to allow social occasions. I have heard you talk positively about keeping the same fasting rhythm. What is your view on switching schedules in these ways?
2: Well, Teresa and James, if you are at all familiar with my work, I am a huge proponent of variety as it pertains to nutrition, exercise, and a fasting program. Obviously, for women that are still menstruating, there are times in the menstrual cycle when we should lean into more fasting as opposed to others when we should not. Men and menopausal women have the advantage of not having as much hormonal fluctuation. So I typically do recommend, you know, our bodies get lazy. You know, if we are doing the same thing, think about if you did the same workout at the gym every time you went, over time your body gets acclimated and you're no longer challenging it. And so we want to think about... Exercise and a fasting regimen as a form of hormesis, you know, beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time to keep things changed and challenged. And so I am absolutely a proponent of different types of exercise, which includes strength training, high intensity interval training, if that's appropriate for you, NEAT, which is just being physically active throughout the day that's not structured exercise. And then, you know, leaning into the fasting piece. In fact, I was listening to a video of Chris Cressers today and he was presenting some kind of new research looking at women in particular in fasting and and a lot of it goes back to things that I talk about. You have to have a large enough window to get enough protein in in your feeding window, not having too narrow of a window getting concerned with over fasting, losing muscle mass. And so there's there's a fine, you know, there's there's a fine line for each one of us. And for me personally, and I'm just gonna give use myself as an example, I'm at a very healthy weight. I don't want to lose muscle mass. I don't do long fasts. You know, there are people that do them. And and if you have a lot of weight to lose, you're struggling a bit, maybe, you know, you needed to have like a digestive reset. You you have more latitude with that than someone that's already at a goal weight or already, you know, pretty metabolically flexible. And so I, I think it's a very individual decision, but I am absolutely a fan of varying what we eat, when we eat, and not doing the same types of exercise every day. What do you think, Melanie?
0: Yeah. So I've thought about this a lot in general with the exercise and everything. I definitely agree that Mixing it up is so key, including all of those different types, like you were saying, because that's really most in line with how we would have evolved as a species. You know, we weren't going to the gym and like working out for 30 minutes every day or like doing the same thing every single day. And we were moving functionally. We weren't just, you know, exercising this one muscle to, you know, really aesthetically the way it looks. So health-wise exercise, mixing it up, I think is great with fasting I think as well, it can be great to mix things up. But I think the complicated nuance is, I guess I just know how I personally am, which for me, like it really works following the same fasting schedule. And when I go off of it, I don't feel as well. And I think part of that might have to do with the peripheral clocks of our body are driven independent within themselves. I was actually just reading about this in a book that I'll probably talk about next episode because have you heard of, I think I mentioned it before, it's the oldest cure in the world. No, I have not. It's by Steve Hendricks. It came out September 6th and it's the deepest dive into the history of fasting I have ever read. So the subtitle is Adventures in the Art and Science of Fasting. I'm going to interview him, which is really exciting, but it's mind-blowing. Some of the things i been learning. But in any case, the, the part I was reading last night was about the SCN, so the master clock in our body, which light affects and which kind of drives a lot of our circadian rhythms. But then all of our cells have peripheral clocks and they can function on their own. So they can be informed by the SCN, but they can also be completely informed on their own. And so eating is actually a very intense clock within us. And it's on its own rhythm and it's often based on how we're eating. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is I find for me personally that if I follow my same fasting window of a one meal a day situation at night, then I feel good during the day. I'm not hungry during the day. I'm hungry at night. I feel good at night. I find it that when I break it, it like messes with that clock for me and I just get ravenous. So like if I were to like widen my eating window, which works really well for a lot of people like to have those days where they have a longer window. For me, it like just doesn't work. Like it would just make me hungry and miserable and not feeling good. And so I I wonder if with the fasting, it's something where people really should take it individually for how it affects them. And you know how do they do with mixing it up or not mixing it up? I think some people will do better with mixing it up and some people won't. Do you have thoughts on that concept? I mean, I do. I just think... Overall,
2: if the bulk of the population here in the United States is not metabolically flexible, they have to change things up. Like I I see where you and I are both coming from, you know, honoring our own bio-individuality, honoring you know the fact that you're a unicorn i always call you the unicorn and i mean that in the most affectionate way like manner not in a pejorative way but like i can get up early i have to go to bed early you can stay up late you like to sleep in so it's it's like figuring out what works for our bodies but knowing that the bulk of people are metabolically inflexible here in the united states and most westernized countries changing things up in some capacity even if it's you lift an extra day that week, or maybe you go an extra hour without eating, or maybe you shorten your window, like some degree of flexibility, I think is important for us. And and that's what I I feel like intrinsically. and, And certainly after coaching thousands of people through this process, there are always exceptions. So let me be very clear, but I feel like most of us need some degree of alteration in schedule. Today's a good example. I have been over the last several months, I've been leaning into eating a little earlier in the day and closing my window a little earlier. And that has worked really well for me. But today I didn't eat till I came home. So I had an unintended almost 20 hour fast and that's not my norm, but I was like, I'll be totally fine. I had a big meal. I'll have one more smaller meal before I go to bed and I'll be good. So I I think it's, unfortunately, you know, when I trained a thousand years ago, the mindset methodology was you treat every patient the same in terms of if they have blood pressure problems, everyone starts with this medication at this dose. And I've just learned to be a little more thoughtful and a little more individualized. So some type of variation of what you're doing, it doesn't have to be dramatic, can be very helpful.
0: So I'm, I'm really glad you said that nuance. And that's something I was actually going to comment on. I wasn't quite sure how to say it. And I think you said it really well. So like for me, the way I would bring in variability in a way or, you know, switching things up would be like fasting a little bit longer. Like it would be like a slight tweak rather than, you know, just a completely different eating window. Or I think I could get similar benefits possibly by changing completely what I'm eating in my eating window, like be it macro wise or whatever. So, you know, or even like a low protein day just to like switch things up or switching to a you know a low-carb day to switch things up. So I definitely think there is some magic there. With the metabolic inflexity piece, I do wonder, though, if for some people, just sticking it out at least while they're metabolically inflexible to a certain window might be important until they're metabolically flexible. Like, I don't know if I'm articulating it correctly.
2: No, no, no. I totally agree with you. And in fact, I had someone on Instagram the other day and... I I know, like I know of her, she's very thin. She's an exercise person. She kept saying, I don't know why you don't just tell people to intuitively eat. And I said, that works fine if you're metabolically flexible, but if you are not, you can't. And to think that everyone can is pejorative. And so I have to very politely say that every time because she always comes back and says, don't tell women over the age of 50, they can't do this and this and this. And I'm like, well, maybe you're an outlier But generally speaking, like I come from it from I'm trying to come from a place of kindness, but it's clearly a triggering topic. So I, I, I think what I hear you saying is very aligned with what I think, that we have to be gentle and kind and realize that some people are ready to jump in feet first and some people have to like dip their toe in the pond. They're terrified of adjusting what they're doing. And so just acknowledge, you know, what resonates for you, what feels good we would never advocate that people do something that's beyond their comfort level. Like if you said to me, I want you to eat a plate of organ meat, I would struggle with that. I have to be completely upfront. It might be just as scary as suggesting someone to change their, their feeding window. So I, I think just entertaining the possibility of making subtle adjustments can be beneficial.
0: and so many more, think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hack. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually Immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So, technically, you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, Hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking, honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress, and I am not kidding. That's right, unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I am just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. Yeah, I cannot agree more. And it's really glad to hear (laughs) your thoughts about that. I often wonder, especially in the beginning when people are fasting, if they haven't flexed their fasting muscle yet, they might want to switch things up, but it's because they haven't they haven't like stuck to it long enough to really get in the flow of fasting. So I get nervous about people, you know, trying to be too intuitive too soon. Some people are great though with being intuitive, but some people aren't. You just have to know who you are and what works for you.
2: Yeah. And I just, unfortunately, I sometimes see very metabolically flexible people shaming other people for not leaning into intuitive eating. And I'm like, they can't, it's not that they don't want to the hormonal regulation in their body is off and they just, they can't lean into that. So I think that we have to be, you know, kind and open-minded and compassionate. I think that goes a long way.
0: Exactly. Like even for me, it would be really, really hard. And it's not a skill that I feel like I need to learn. I don't feel like I need to be able to intuitively eat a brownie. Like maybe if I eat a brownie, that makes me really craving and want more food. And maybe that's just the way it is. And maybe I can just know that about myself and not like not feel bad that I can't, you know, moderate things like that. I think it should be okay if you know that certain foods are troublesome for you to like abstain if that makes you happier.
2: Yeah, no, no. And I I think it's interesting. The thing that I'm always intuitive about is carbs. Like I don't count carbs, but I have a good sense of how much I'm eating. And so like yesterday is a good example. I wanted blueberries and By some miracle, my 15-year-old hadn't eaten them all yet. My husband bought them on Sunday, and usually he finishes off any fruit that's in the house like within 24 hours. And so I had some blueberries, and my husband was like, I'm actually glad to see you eating some blueberries. I said, well, I wanted them. And it was like my body wanted something healthy, and I'll lean into that. And so that's the intuition. But I acknowledge that not every person, and quite frankly, If we look at statistics, you know, 7 to 8% of Americans are metabolically flexible. So the average person can't do that. I think it can be validating to hear that and also gives people something to work towards.
0: All righty. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you would like to submit your own questions for the show, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. These show notes for today's episode will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 295. You can follow us on Instagram. I am Melanie Avalon. Cynthia is Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. And I just, well, I want to apologize to you, Cynthia, for my craziness today and to the audience for my craziness (laughs) But I have the Taylor Swift tickets
2: now. <laughs> yes, you got your tickets. I was saying to Melanie that ticket prices have gotten so insane. I was like, how do young people afford to go? I went to so many concerts when I was a teenager and a 20-something. It kind of makes me sad.
1: I know.
0: It's it's crazy.
2: That's probably why I have tinnitus. I have chronic tinnitus, chronic ringing in my ears. And my working hypothesis for my ENT, it's, you know, it's all those concerts you went to. And I was like, probably... Red Hot Chili Peppers was especially loud many years ago.
0: Oh, I bet. So you're going to like the like rock and roll type concerts?
2: I mean, I, I've been to everything. Like I I definitely, I mean, from it runs the gamut from, you know, alternative music when I was in college is now considered very mainstream, but I've seen Red Hot Chili Peppers, I've seen, you know, U2 multiple times. I mean, it's I'm dating myself, but yeah, but now it's like I have no interest in being in a big loud crowd. I'm like, okay, I can watch everything online. I'm good.
0: <laughs> well, I go to concerts like like I'm going to Mannheim Steamroller in a few weeks. So I'm going to Trans-Siberian Orchestra, but I don't normally and I go to musicals, so that doesn't count. <laughs> I don't I'm not a concert person except for Taylor Swift.
2: Well, I'm very excited for you.
0: So, oh my goodness. Okay. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you again. Sorry again, and I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman, editing by podcast doctors, show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner, transcripts by Speech Docs, and original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.